Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Megan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, sure. Um, my name's Megan Mansell, and um, I'm an author of a book called Accommodating Chaos, which is um, about correcting course on a plague of misinformation um, regarding the particulate dynamics, misapplications with uh, masks and respirators, as well as what we did wrong and why um, in our pandemic response with special populations. Um, I'm also a contributor with Brownstone and Rational Ground Publications and um, have done a lot of pandemic coverage on um, kind of areas of oversight and mitigation. Before we get into the mass subject, I wanted to ask you, I just hate that word misinformation now. Every time I hear it, and it's like, even if I have like a document or if I have an article or something, people just go, no, it's like, it's, it's just now being used so fluently. It's this blanket term that I think people um, tend to assign to things that they don't understand well enough to actually like form their own opinion on, um, you know. Either something's wrong or it isn't. <laughs> Whatever happened to just talking about whether or not things were correct, um, and and so it's it's charged and it um, it it's it's seen as a a derogatory term that you can call people you know misinformation super spreaders and things of that nature just when you don't understand or or have the capacity to engage with their content i feel like so much of it is it's like the word conspiracy theory now everyone just tosses that out and that or they toss out misinformation it's like well i think we need to have like an actual discussion on it but that's just like to end the conversation someone says that and there's like no diving into whatever that point is but i'm curious what your perspective of the whole pandemic was in the beginning compared to where you're at now I feel like so much of what happened early on in the pandemic was people had this good intention. They didn't have a lot of information at the time. They wanted to be seen as helpful. They wanted to commit to being helpful to others when they also didn't pay attention to whether or not the efforts they were putting forth um, that were highly restrictive um, in, in many instances were actually helpful. And in, in many cases they weren't, but as long as the people who knew what they were talking about kept pushing those things, people didn't want to see it as, as those who, you know, went against the common good. And there was so much guilt assigned to it. There was so much guilt assigned to pushing compliance for things with children that they were you know, largely conditioned into uh, compliance measures for things that didn't actually help. And how bizarre is it that we, um, you know, pushed, pushed on the children the, the guilt of saving the elderly <laughs> for a pathogen where the average mortality rate was higher, you know, of an older age um, than our our national standard mortality rate. <laughs> so, so much to the point where grandparents, if they wanted to visit their grandkids, would stand outside behind a window and just wave at their grandkids from inside the house, which to me was just really, really strange. It's very strange what children have been put through. Um, you know, and and one of the only things that I said, like, hey, this was actually the only um effective measure was did you see people who like made the the barriers completely sealed off 
of one room or one house to the next. Well, it wouldn't work with a room, but you know, the doorway to a house where it was plastic with these arms coming out to give COVID hugs or whatever. It's very bizarre, but also um, we have done unforgivable things like causing people to, you know, give birth or have miscarriages or die alone. Um, we've, we've done terrible things to people in the name of um, safety, of, of all these measures that didn't add up as actually saving the people that this was all supposed to be about saving to begin with. Um, that. Oh. I, I wanted to talk about like, do you think it's a lot about the mixed messaging that was going on? Like a lot of these officials that were stating things in the beginning either did 180s on it and people are either saying, no, this is what they've always said. Like it's very, very hard to the point like we have a weird idolization of Fauci right now. I don't like him at all, but a lot of people have like bobbleheads of the man. And I'm like, okay, something got either this is just a conflict of personalities that happened way before the pandemic where everyone's got their own mixed emotions and perceptions on things, or there was a messaging that got lost and it was so backwards and kept flipping back and forth that we're also really really divided right now well i'm in florida and people don't have bobbleheads of fauci here <laughs> <laughs> um but uh you know and, and it's so strange because if i stay off the internet this doesn't exist to me it, it's done here like it's not something you that's how it is here in maryland here that's that's nice <laughs> i've I've been on some podcasts in Canada recently, and that is not the case for them. Um, and and so here's what I think it is. Um, it, it was always a problem about particle behavior and minimum viable particle size under pressure. Um, but people didn't know that. They had these assigned figureheads who were, they were like, this person is going to be the person who saves the world. And you can't, that, that's not a very scientific process at all. That's, it's not just you assign this one person who's going to figure it out. And if they do everything wrong, we just get to say like, oops, you know, they tried, but we'll, we'll celebrate them anyway, because they were the assigned person. And we'll keep doing that measure to make them feel good. Like that, that's never been the process. Um, and, you know, if this were not a pathogen with a 99.8% survivability rate and instead, you know, an aerosolized, noxious, deadly hazard like a um, cyanide gas where being exposed to a specific dose of it was lethal, completely lethal, you could expect to die, people would care about particle behavior. People would care about minimum dose. Um, people would care about an actual mitigating apparatus for the hazard grade, but because they don't see it as very, um, you know, deadly to them in particular, and also because they've been assigned this erroneous concept of source control, um, masks are not source control for aerosol hazards. Um, so you have people thinking it's droplet that people are going around spluttering and spitting all over the place on each other. So, you know, if that really were the case, then this barrier methodology and distancing methodology um, would have worked. And the reason that it didn't 
is because we're talking about a hazard that remains aloft and saturates the space that you're in with every breath. And it remains both aloft and viable for extended periods of time. Um, so, you know, it's not this, you know, six foot over arc and drop and it's on the ground and no longer a hazard anymore. Um, and it, those are very different things. They're mitigated very differently. The mitigation measures are non-interchangeable for droplet and aerosol hazards. Um, and those details matter. And I was about to say, when it comes to masks, though, I mean, do you, were they more, I mean, were they at all effective or were they just more damaging? I've done probably one podcast about masks before. Um, and it was about like, kind of like it really, what it does, it's like trying to throw uh, sand at a chain link fence when it came to some of this bacteria. And if you're not rewashing your mask and kind of taking care of it, you're just basically breathing in bad particles and things of that sort. Well, there's that. And then there's also the issue of biological amplification, which is you have a prime location for growing other grody stuff right in front of your mouth and nose. But it's not like a chain link fence. It's more like a garden hose, how you can change different settings on a garden hose. And the greater that you have the force of fluid through the end, the greater the trajectory. So you know, when you have an apparatus that isn't very fitted, you're just redirecting maybe garden hose on, um, you know, a, a general flow setting, but it can't go through it. So it's going out the side. Is this helpful to sit next to on a six hour flight? Is it, is it helpful for your neighbor to be breathing directly into your face and your eyes? No, that, that's not very helpful. But the more fit of the apparatus, you end up having pressurized plumes like you would um, turning a garden hose on a mist setting. And so you have a, a valved N95 respirator here. And this one is important because it's a, a test site administrator breathing this matter directly over materials that'll then be stuck right up your nose or directly in your car window by someone wearing a non-mitigating apparatus who is the most likely in contact with the novel pathogen. So being really specific about whether or not you're in PPE that prevents you from meeting infective dose thresholds, um, that means how much of the matter is infectious and how much of the infectious matter it requires to become sick with that transmissible pathogen. Um, in, in, in people, it, it's a complicated issue, but we have so much research on that at this point in time. Um, I have a, a pretty good article um, that goes at it from an angle I haven't seen anybody else do. I explore, um, it's called Why N95s Fail to Stop the Spread, and it's on um, the output spectrum of individuals um, who are actively ill with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the minimum infective dose spectrum to become sick with, with SARS-CoV-2 um, particle to PFU ratio, which is um, how many of the, um, so sometimes, or some of what you're emitting is just um, viral RNA. Some of it isn't actively viable viral material capable of causing infection. So it breaks down what percentage um of that is actually infectious 
infectious. Um, and then I apply hypothetical perfect capture capacity of N95s to the output and minimum effective dose spectrums um, to show that even at hypothetical perfect capture capacity with this high output and low minimum infective dose of a pathogen, if, if N95s were perfectly capturing 95%, they're still non-mitigating for this hazard. So would it have to be sealed or like up on that? Because I noticed like when people wear glasses, there's smoke or there's fog that their glasses fog up and that's them breathing. So the air is coming out through the top the, of the side. That's the exhalation port for an unvalved N95. And it's supposed to go out the nose bridge. Um, it, it It's perfectly sealed for inhale. For exhale, there's different, differing pressure. And that's in, in so... In looking at these different apparatuses, unvalved, valved N95s, um, you know, here's surgical masks, which you know, people push all all of these different. Did you get apparatuses. the bandanas? They got the bandanas. Eventually, everyone was just like, "I want to put toilet paper on my face." I'm like, "Congratulations!" I mean, here's cloth. Here's the exhalation plume going straight through cloth. Um, yeah, the, the bandana was, you know, the most laughably, you know, we had the Surgeon General of the United States telling everybody to make an apparatus out of t-shirts. If you wouldn't wear this apparatus, if you had a gas leak in your house, it, you know, obviously if you have gas leak in your house, you tell everybody go outside until this is fixed. You're physically separating yourself from the hazard. But for this, everybody just said, you know, sew something up and call it a day. And um, but if you if you wouldn't wear it for, you know, a, an accumulating um, aerosol hazard such as that, you wouldn't wear it for an airborne pathogen that saturates with every breath. And it remains viable for hours on end. So it, it can remain aloft for days. But the viability of it wanes over time. Now, it doesn't have to be attached to some, you know, large globule in order to remain viable. As an aerosol, it's also been shown to remain viable for extended periods of time. And um, you were you were touching on something when we when I kind of um, sidetracked on um, biological amplification there, but excuse me, um, you also have the matter that's becoming caught in the membrane. What happens when I take a, a larger droplet fluid and I put it through the end of a garden hose like I was talking about? I have pressure on a droplet um, against a membrane. So what happens to that larger fluid that would have otherwise trickled out? It becomes broken down into smaller and sm smaller matter, depending on the pressure applied against the membrane. So both on inhalation, you have um, the nebulization of bound particulate that's been captured in the membrane. And then on exhale, when you have forceful exhalation against that membrane, you're just breaking down whatever has become caught within moisture within that membrane. And so to assert like the 95% um, with N95s, you have people say, well, you know, electrostatics. Well, electrostatics wane when moist. We're talking about a moist hazard. Um, nobody wants to talk it about individual PPE. In, in, N95s are bottom of the barrel respirators. They're not like <laughs> some holy grail. It's just the minimum 
um, apparatus at the time that was capable of being required for very short periods of time um, for non not this specific, but for aerosol hazards within the workplace, um, you still have to look at um, the actual hazard. This should have been IDLH. This should have had people in, you know, at a minimum Papper and Capper units when they're working in direct contact with act actively transmissible individuals before the point that we knew how low risk of a pathogen it was. Um, you're very informed on a lot of this. Like, is this research like well available? Because even some doctor's offices in a lot of places down here in Maryland, some places don't talk about it. Like it's a very taboo subject to even mention COVID at all. But if you go to a doctor's office, they give you the little blue mask. And I, I would feel like with all this dat data out that they would just be like, no, these are completely useless. So you can just toss these away. They should. And, you know, doctors are required to meet with industrial hygienists annually for fit tested hazard specific kit for each workplace exposure scenario. It's, it's much like going to a construction site and asking a construction worker to explain the physics um, involved in, in their hard hat. Uh, they're they're non-experts. They are consumers of a product and you know, in a dental office, your dental hygienist absolutely should keep covering their face with a barrier to keep dental debris and splashes and sprays out of their mouth and nose and eye protection for their eyes. You're in direct contact with another human being who has this stuff flying all around. But general life is not a splatter and spray situation. And had the, the doctors in those offices actually listened to their industrial hygienists, whom they're required to meet with annually. Um, and before donning any of these apparatuses, they have to complete 15 pages of medical clearance for OSHA compliance. All of this got thrown out the window. N95s can't be worn for extended periods of time. You're talking about a fitted apparatus that restricts breathing. And the physiological harms of wearing these apparatuses were very well established pre-COVID. We just threw it all out the window. I work at a gym. So we had to tell people like eventually they, they finally made a statement like, don't wear them while you're running. Like you can take them off for a brief time on the treadmill, which makes a hundred percent sense, which is like, that's what we were saying in the beginning. Don't wear them while you run. Cause you're going to pass out. Cause we were having people that were wearing them thinking that I got to stay safe a hundred percent of the time. And it's like, you're going to pass out from heat exhaustion or whatever. You're just breathing in everything you're trying to push out. Don't wear them if you're pregnant. Don't put them on a child because the apparatuses that are um, approved for adults are by no means interchangeable with children. We have very different respiratory systems. Um, every apparatus you've ever seen on a child is unregulated, untested, and unsafe with zero efficacy fit filtration term of wear medical clearance standards. I will say that one in my sleep. I say it so often, but um, it's it's very important that you know you understand that um that you know the practice of what we have put children through could not pass an ethics review board um for human study which i know from writing um a human study and having it presented before irb by an md friend um to have it argued as a potential human study and it was unanimously rejected um for 
significant ethical findings and anticipation of harm. Um, we can also anticipate that harm, <laughs> you know, um, but instead we just threw it all out the window and said, you know, we we never got specific about what actually helps and what would have helped to um, prevent, you know, to, to kind of help with the spread. You know, you wouldn't have never, nothing's 100%, but what would have helped here also would have helped for each coming pathogen of each coming flu season and, you know, whatever else comes along that's, that's an airborne pathogen. You need to improve air quality. Uh, you need to exhaust a hierarchy of controls, which is engineering controls and behavioral controls and, you know, removal of the hazard practices like staying home when you're sick or, um, you know, staying away from the person you know is very ill and actively contagious, but also being specific about like, you know, if you're a very medically vulnerable person and you're on a shared HVAC system with this person with this high output pathogen, you're probably going to be exposed. Um, things like that actually would have saved people. Can I ask what the restrictions are? I mean, there's no restrictions, I don't think, in Florida where you are, but does anybody still wear masks? Like just maybe people that just feel comfortable with it on? Because at this point, I think it's more of a social thing. Um, at one point in time, the city I'm in had a, a, a citywide mandate for public spaces. And so at that time, I mean, not everybody followed it, but at that time you saw maybe 60 or 70% compliance. And now it's like... You might see like one or two if you go do a whole day of shopping. Um, it's not common. You see them in places like, um, like, I mean, it's it's not really common, but you might see like one person pushing a shopping cart, walking around wearing one, and they're usually um minimally compliant you still see a lot of cloth which is pretty laughable that some people bought into this so much that they're still wearing these you know dirty sagging cloth apparatuses that will never meet leakage standards um 3.2 percent leakage equating to 100 percent inefficacy is a pretty important factor because you no longer are pulling anything through the membrane at that point aerosols taking the path of least resistance are just coming in um the side gaps of the apparatus you mentioned with the or you showed that photo of the person testing with the um, n95 mask on um you noticed that food people the ones that were considered like um, like even drive-through people that were considered essential workers um wearing i still see some wearing masks now um just surgical masks. And I go, is that not directing more of whatever they're breathing out onto food and things of that sort, like you were mentioning with um, testing equipment? And it would depend on how how fitted it is. And, and they actually make some apparatuses that come up from the chin and block the lower quadrant of the face. And it's just kind of like a splash shield. Those are way better for, for food service where you're trying to get somebody to not spit down in your food which is why, you know, we have the little overhang thing at the salad bars to keep people from breathing on your food. Like, you know, there's this grocery worker by my house at the beginning of the pandemic, 
And I wrote about her a very long time ago, like to the extent I don't even remember the article I wrote about. I would like have to go look. It was very like early 2020. And this was when they decided that in order to come to work, you have to wear some kind of face covering. You have to provide it yourself because um, the grocery store couldn't find any supply to provide to their employees. But if you wanted to work, you had to wear a mask. So this girl I saw multiple times over a two-week period. And each time I would you know, talk to her, she never changed her surgical mask for two weeks as a grocery checker. And you think about everything your hands come into contact with over a, a two-week period as a grocery checker. You're handling money, and money is disgusting. You're handling leaky meat packages and, you know, all of this. And then she's adjusting the sweaty mask right in front of her mouth and nose. And we did a sampling of child masks after one day of wear in the Alachua mask sampling um, that we we had um, cultured and, um, and, and in a lab um, and after one day of wear, we found three pages of pathogenic findings. Like, I would love to have, I mean, she would, if she would have had her, that filthy mask tested, which was just the most egregious OSHA violation I think I've ever seen. Um, I don't think that she'd have to work again for the rest of her life if she knew what to do with that, because what she was required to put herself through and expose herself to should should never happen to anybody again. It was it was disgusting. Could I, <laughs> could I ask about like I mean this might be a little bit conspiratorial, but I mean accountability does that take the accountability off of the people that said wear a mask and double down on masks? I mean, Fauci was saying two masks at at one point, but the fact that there wasn't really any like you need to wash your mask out there you need to have proper precautions. You just a different one maybe every couple of days or however long it is until that to minimize any type of risk um that i mean i don't know what happened to accountability all of these things should have been um held accountable uh, all of these workplaces requiring these apparatuses without going through proper procedure should have been held accountable our public health agencies who pushed this um complete non-mitigating nonsense that's dangerous on our populations should have been held accountable. They weren't suggestions, they were requirements. Um, and and never were they requirements. And, and I think that that's why you see such a pushback to this day of people saying, oh no, it totally worked, it totally works. They don't wanna drop it because dropping it, I think then I think they're just trying to hold back the avalanche of accountability. Um, that needs to happen has needed to happen since the very beginning because you know you can try to protect people but no one's public sector access rights trump the public sector access rights of anybody else and so like what you see in um, educational settings of people trying to say well you know we have this medically vulnerable child that we're trying to push into a, a mainstream classroom so we're going to make everybody else wear a mask okay well you can't push everything everybody else into a non-mitigating apparatus to cre create a false sense of security to 
ineffectively integrate a student who should not be exposed to gen ed. And in the practice always beforehand was that that student could either be tiered out in an integrated grouping that has, you know, protective standards and doesn't mingle with the mainstream population or is serviced through hospital homebound. And instead we threw all of our policy and procedure that we've always had in place since like the 1960s. Um, and we just decided to push for everybody to all be part of the same group, even when it's very dangerous to a, you know, a child who's on immunosuppressives for um, undergoing cancer treatment or, or things of that nature. Like this is the kind of flippancy that can actually get someone killed. Um, and, and I think about it with nursing homes and, you know, being in our city, they had 16,000 handmade cloth masks that they pushed on nursing home facilities and um, adult care facilities for like, people who can't, you know, take care of themselves independently. And, um, you know, some of these people were, were required to wear them like all the time if they were around other people. Where's, where's the accountability for New York and the nursing homes of, um, you know, pushing actively transmissible individuals among those who are most likely to pass away from this pathogen, you know, so. And those are the biggest hotbeds, New York, Oregon, other places like that, that really doubled down the mass thing. And when the numbers go up, it's like, maybe you should, are, you yeah, know, it's like, maybe you should change your policy or something. They're like, no, we're going to double down even more. That means we got to be tighter if we're getting higher numbers. I remember in the beginning, everyone was throwing shade at Florida, saying Florida's like this COVID cesspool. And I was like, oh, it's, it's crazy because I have friends that and I live, I'm in Maryland, but we have people that travel from Florida and they stay either in Florida one month and they come over here one month. And they're like, nobody talks about any of this. And it's like now nobody over there. Look at it now. You guys are never talked about in the news as as well as it was before. And it's just like what I don't understand. Like the New York, the Oregon's, the ones that really have forced it on people and blocked people in their homes, tossed like my town was doing five thousand dollar fines at one point. There was so much that either now it's silence, not talked about, or the news just doesn't want to even look over and say, what's New York doing? You know, they followed every single procedure we said to do, and nobody's pointing out the number of people with COVID and just how the numbers are not changing. And they're also, you know, it, it, it's continued over that we have this like make-believe that's being pushed also um, with with vaccinations and you know so now what they're pushing in order to push vaccinations is this long covid thing there of, of of what i can find and anybody is welcome to share with me if, if you feel like i've misspoke um please please do share with me if you find it but i have not been able to find a single uh, long covid study that excludes both mask wearing and vaccination status. And the, the reason that these are important is because both of these factors are known and established, like you know, blocking a face for extended periods of time has physiological ramifications. There are also established um, harms reported from vaccinations in VAERS. And so um, you have two different factors that could also manifest in the same symptoms that are reporting to be 
um, being reported as, as from long COVID. But you can't say that it's from this one thing when you have two other factors that can manifest in the exact same symptoms and conditions um, that you have that you're just throwing a blanket over and contributing um, or attributing to just one factor and calling it cause. I think that's a huge issue. Do you think that they're just using that to take the blame off themselves a little bit for the maybe if it was one of those two factors that could also lead to the same exact things that were labeling long COVID? Like the most I know from like a long COVID symptom is like someone that has no smell still or still can't smell anything. Um, that's the worst I've seen. Brain fog's another one. Um, but also that one's hard to tell because anything can really lead to brain fog. There's plenty of other things out there that people have disorders or diseases that have, they have brain fog already. And now they're just starting to get research on it because COVID brought up the word brain fog to everyone. So I'm curious. And I'm not, and I'm not by any means saying that, you know, post-viral syndromes don't exist. They're established with, um, you know, many other pathogens that, that we've had. Um, I just don't think that we probably have the numbers of people who are actually, you know, suffering from from long COVID as we have that they were likely caused by other factors. Um, but you're right, like the the sense of smell thing. Um, that's not one of the the leading. That is a leading reported symptom post. Um, you know, post case with COVID. Um, but that's actually not one of the leading things that I'm seeing reported as, um, you know, being attributed to long COVID. It's things like um, headaches, and there's a, a couple of, of um, symptoms that are very clearly, um, you know, established as as having been from hypoxia and hypercapnia which um you know extended mask wearing leads to headaches are really common with extended mask wearing so i just think that you know what what is the harm in being really cautious and excluding um other things that are very easily contributing factors manifesting in the same symptoms don't we want to be um, accurate with our um, research, you know, our, our research with our outcomes, with what public health guidance that is being given. I think that's all. You know, really... I mean, was was there a lack of looking in some of the areas of research when it came to how effective are these masks? It seems like every article I came across, especially like maybe a, probably a year ago before other articles and research started really popping up, but everything was just doubling down on masks are effective, masks are this, masks are that. I'm like, well, I'm looking at this. I had to go over to like Sweden's research and be like, at ResearchGate, they're saying this is not effective at all and masks are actually hurting people. But it was like one study out of like 800 that would tell you. Something would come out and then there would be this like immediate attack launched against whatever paper to attempt to get it retracted over like really simple things of really silly things unrelated to the paper, like maybe an author on a profile of theirs had a, a work history that was no longer updated. So retract that paper, retract all of its findings because of something completely irrelevant to the paper. So now we have, we have, we have two things. We have things that people push 
to try to show mask effectiveness. And we have RCTs that show they did not work. And so when you have something showing they didn't work, of course, that's immediately going to be attacked. But I think the strongest one we have right now is the Canadian randomized control trial where um, it was a comparison of the efficacy of surgical masks versus N95 um, and to show that there was really no difference in application. And so, you know, people who are trying to attack that study, you'll say, no, um, you, you, um, you, they weren't wearing the N95 for the duration of their 12-hour shift. Well, you can't. <laughs> you you legally can't. You physically should not wear an N95 for 12 hours straight, um, which goes back to that hazard-specific. If you're in direct exposure, there's an appropriate time to don PPE, and but but most of the time, it's when you're looking to engineering controls. It's when you're exhausting hierarchy of controls, and so you know some people are so conditioned at this point to wear a surgical mask for far longer that you can have greater compliance with that because it gaps on the side and in the bottom and it hangs on your face and it's not the same as wearing a fitted respirator well, they did for some, extended periods of time. The the people that really like were authoritarians on the mask thing, the one thing that they kept pulling out was the social aspect with masks, which was just that if you don't wear one, you're just, you just want to get people killed. Like that's, that's what, that's what all we all know. Everyone knows about that. But like, when you look at the actual research, it shows something different, like things that you've highlighted in this podcast, you've gave great data on, but the whole social aspect of this thing. And I mean, do you think that some of these authoritarians or just people like Fauci that were really pushing masks, double masks, do you think that was to separate people a little bit? Because if you really look at the number of people that moved to states where they didn't come, they didn't have mask mandates or they didn't have vaccine mandates or they didn't have to do certain things, people did move. A lot of people I know moved to Texas or Florida, um, either because they lost their business and they couldn't, there's no need for them to stay here. But it really started lumping people into categories of either mask unmasked vaccinated unvaccinated and now it seems like it's mainly like a state location like maryland and florida for instance everyone kind of just get, you know if they are told to wear one they might put one on to get inside a business but everyone stopped talking about it but then other places are still pushing them it's not just my opinion the american society for testing and materials astm standard specification for barrier face coverings f3502-21 note 2 states there are currently no established methods for measuring outward leakage from a barrier face covering, medical mask, or respirator. Nothing in this standard addresses or implies a quantitative assessment of outward leakage, and no claims can be made about the degree to which a barrier face covering reduces emission of human-generated particles. Or note five, there are currently no specific accepted techniques that are available to measure outward leakage from a barrier face covering or other products. Thus, no claims may be made with respect to the degree of source control offered by the barrier face covering based on leakage assessment. It's not just my opinion. There are no accepted techniques for claiming an apparatus functions as source control. So it was entirely baseless for anybody to come out and tell people that wearing this apparatus protected others from your respiratory emissions from the start. I didn't come up with this. This is the ASTM. We have NIOSH. We have these 
over, you know, we have these, we have this information readily available. And for those in charge, they should be absolutely familiar with, it, with this information. And the, you know, without the application of guilt, people needed to be asking questions because one thing that I actually care about and one of the reasons that, you know, one of the, the main things I address in Accommodating Chaos is what people should have done instead um, and why. Because I have absolutely no issue with and am very much in support of actually protecting medically vulnerable populations. But we didn't do that. And we never got around to doing that. And we never got around to following regulation and following protocol. And as of right now, this failed measure that we followed this whole time, this is the plan for next time. This is the plan going forward. And it's a terrible plan. <laughs> and it failed. And instead of admitting that it failed and trying to address what we should do differently, People are just trying to deny that it failed as it fails, as it will continue to fail. Um, and and I think that is a huge issue. I, I agree with you. It's just, I think people are, I mean, the, the people that are denying it still, they just know that people are going to be coming at them with pitchforks if they find out that they knew all this all along or they kept doubling down on something that was they knew was ineffective. I mean, at this point, they're just every they're just ignoring anything. Any outside opinion gets called misinformation or something like that, even if it's a well-researched study, which is so difficult because other places, other countries have had a different handle on it. Imagine being that wrong about something and pushing it that hard for three entire years. All of the people who were, you know, compliant with it for three entire years uh, and, and the backlash that would come and, and and people are in denial about it. You can physically show people them not working. And, and here's, you know, some of these photos that I've shown are Sclerian image types, but this, this is important. This, this video that I took this image still from you're seeing his respiratory emission plumes in cold weather. That's not smoke. A lot of these videos will use smoke. And so you're adding something to it just to show where everything plumes out. But on that video, you or you know, on, on that specific one, you see it coming out of the top from the nose bridge. You see it coming straight out the sides. Um it it's important during periods of cold weather for people to actually go and test these things. I was even saying, you know, before you try to push it on um, airlines and for people to, to wear them on flights, go and put a, a plane in very cold weather and go have people wear the full gamut of apparatuses so you can see that even if you're wearing a, a half face piece respirator, well, that has a, a one of the exhalation valves right in the center of it. And, you know, you, you might be wearing a P100 half face piece respirator, but it doesn't protect others from your exhale emissions. So there's two entirely separate conversations. There's the conversation about what would actually protect you as the wearer and what would protect other people from you. What would protect other people from you is you for one thing not being sick 
if you're in, you know, if you're actively transmissible, you shouldn't be in a public space with other people. You should stay home. <laughs> um, common sense. But, you know, common sense. Engineering controls. But masks don't protect others from your respiratory emissions. And, you know, and so I think that it would have been helpful for people to, you know, have instead of these guilt posters, I think it would be helpful to, you know, just have something saying like sitting next to this dude for this duration of your six hour flight is not protecting you from their respiratory emissions. Like think about how many people bought into this and had a false sense of security and decided, well, you know, I only have one lung, but I'm going to travel because I feel like it and everybody else is keeping me safe. Like, I think that was my like come to God moment is when I saw a YouTube video of a guy vaping through his mask. And I was like, is that real? So then I grabbed my vape and then I had my mask on and I blew through it. And I was like, what's the point of this? And I just kind of put it down. And whenever you would suggest that to someone, everyone kind of look at you and nod their head and walk away. And it's like, nobody's really caring at this point. At this point is just doing it for the looks. But then the other part of that that people kind of didn't get was they're saying, well, well, so much of it is droplet. It's it's stopping the droplets. Okay, so now we have research showing the um, output ranges of you know we have some some pretty good research at this point showing when you breathe, when you're both when you're sick and just in general. More than ninety percent of your respiratory emissions are under zero point three microns. Nothing you see anybody wearing filters or captures or blocks 0.3 microns and under. Um, it's just, they they want to say, well, it has to be a, attached to this larger droplet in order to remain viable. Now we have plenty of research showing, no, that's not true. It remains viable when exhaled. It remains aloft for hours. And... And that's why things like airflow, like why wasn't our first defense saying like, open a window, meet people outside, Ventilation. everything dissipates. Ventilation is a, a very important factor in this. And, and as are things like addressing the really gross things like um, flush plumes in public restrooms, ventilation, again, the key, but I will not judge anybody for wearing head-to-toe PPE into a public restroom because those places are nasty. <laughs> um, but dispose of it immediately. There should be burn barrels of, of getting rid of all of this stuff because you shouldn't keep wearing these apparatuses and breathing through it all day in a warm, moist, and porous environment right in front of your mouth and nose. Like, that is not a good idea. Um, and... You know, especially with children, and this is why one of the things that I've said throughout is like people should get their masks tested because children are notoriously sterile creatures. Um, you know, kids who are forced into compliance for something, how many of them, you know, dropped their mask on the restroom floor, set it down on an unclean surface, or um, didn't wash their hands and then handled it and it's you you have just a petri dish right in front of your mouth and nose that you're breathing all day like why why would we ever have trusted children to understand cross contamination and 
sterility. <laughs> like, it, do you think that the teachers who are responsible for 26, you know, six year olds in their class are on top of what everybody's doing with this apparatus all day? It was because the disease was, I guess, relayed to mean that it was more dangerous than anything they could get from just dirt or anything like that from a mask. I mean, the amount of parents that were putting masks on their kids and thinking that I mean, everyone got scared at that point. I mean, when they went after the kids thing, I think I really only saw the public put their foot down when they started forcing shots or applying shots to kids. And that's when people were like, wait, wait a minute. Like it really kind of woke a lot of people up. But in the beginning, everyone just thought, oh, this is way, this is way uh, safer for them than them getting the virus because the virus is so bad. And it, I, like I said, that's the relay of the message from the public health officials lock their lower quadrant of their face required for linguistic development and onset of linguistic and social cues to see tooth, tongue, and lip placement or emulate caregiver social cues to properly be able to reflect back those expressions. You know, let's just throw that all out the window. Do you know how many kids now are requiring um, social and, and language interventions um, from missed uh, developmental stages. Um, and this is something I called really early and tried to prevent really early because those building blocks are fundamental. And even with therapies, sometimes they just never come through as natural. And I also was trying to warn that we're going to see an, an uptick in autism spectrum diagnoses because you can't differentiate the, that of which is an actual um, autism case and that which is manifested out of denial of those fundamentals. Um, Wait, so like, is it is it because the facial cues and kind of the intuition aspect that come with this lower quadrant of the face too? naturally be able to um to learn your tooth tongue and lip placement for each of your your sounds in development it's really important um to be able to to do that just you know your your eyes don't don't communicate that much um and and so when you're teaching corrective sounds with children you're teaching you know for F that you have to bite your lip a little bit. And for TH, you stick your tongue out a little bit. Um, each, each sound is formed a little differently. Um, and, and children watch your mouth and they watch your, your lower quadrant of your face to, to mimic all of that. And so, and then to escape that apparatus for many, the option was keep wearing the non-mitigating apparatus with zero efficacy fit filtration term of wear medical clearance standards or inject your child with a medicinal with zero longitudinal safety data. That was it. Those were your, those were your choices. Which one? I mean, which one's more? Da I mean, they're both bad, but the damaging one is the kids that have long term when it comes to not being able to understand facial cues as well, too, and just social stuff. Well, I mean, the medicinal was zero longitudinal safety data. We know that in some instances that resulted in death. Um, and so, you know, they're they're both awful. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 especially when we had other means by which to um keep the, keep children safer, not only from this, but from um 
each each coming pathogen as well. Everybody benefits from um, improved ventilation, and, and especially in some of these schools, like I know what the situation has been. Like you know, people haven't cared much about a mold and the air ducts and and things like that. Like we had endless funding all of a sudden you're you're printing all this money to um to push people into compliance with things that didn't work what would have happened if you know we actually targeted that funding on on things that made public spaces safer and cleaner and um I don't agree with Mike Ulsterholm a lot, but he was the one that mentioned the ventilation thing that I thought was really, really important because he didn't recommend like mandates are not against your rights or anything like that, which I didn't necessarily agree with. But when he talked about ventilation was when I started looking at ventilation, I was like, yeah, we should have definitely focused on that instead of trying to push these measures per individual person. But I mean, I just got a last question for you, but it's about your thoughts on the health institutions. I mean, do you think, I mean, you are going to trust them again? I mean, I feel like with everybody now is just distrusting. I know people that pulled their kids out of school and they homeschool their kids now. Um, I am one of those people. <laughs> um, you know, my, my son was supposed to begin pre-K in 2020 and his outdoor nature-based program decided that you know, they weren't going to be ha having outdoor nature based anymore. It was going to be everybody inside masked and distanced for the duration of the program. And I'm like, I, you're going to do this ourselves. And then it, it actually just ended up working for us and we don't have to homeschool anymore, but um, we enjoy it. And, you know, we're part of some other communities and what I like about homeschooling is you you kind of align with like-minded people and so you know people who want to say well you know there's any danger in that like homeschooling people stay home when they're sick because you're not like I'm going to miss another day of work you just have to go even though you were puking your guts out this morning which happens all the time in public school settings um, so, you know, our, our risk of, you know, our, our risk is lower. We go around other kids often, but, um, you know, people are really good about sitting this one out if, if one of their kids is sick. And so, um, I've been in schools. I, I, I know about immune bombardment firsthand. And, and there's a reason that every single year, um, you'll if you if if you're if you don't believe me, go back and FOIA your substitute payroll for the first month of school each year and after um, holiday break in, in December. Because that's when you'll see your uptick in substitute teachers because Everybody is facing immune bombardment, especially new teachers who are not used to how grody it is to be around 26 children all day long or, you know, 18 preschoolers or, or whatever it may be. But it's um, it's it can be gross. <laughs> Kids can be gross. And um, and in a and what? different people see as acceptable versus what different people think of as sick. Like I don't take 
my kids around other people if they're like dripping boogers <laughs> like it's time to stay home and, and 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 I'm sorry that's gross but um you know I I have three little kids so navigating this thing was was different from that perspective for me and and I had options that a lot of people didn't and and I fully support homeschooling but I also fully support public education and I fully support private education and you can't homeschool if you don't have a home or if you're just like an unwilling person who doesn't want to take that on or can't or can't properly meet your child's needs or accommodations like there's there's a reason we had all of this established ahead of time and then we were just supposed to turn it off like the flip of a switch and um, replace it with kids staring at a computer for eight hours a day um, it's really sad it's really sad what we put people through well Meg, megan i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show um is there a place uh, where people can yeah. find any of your links um yep um and i was gonna also say that i think that it would it would require a complete overhaul and with a focus on transparency before people were ever trusting of public health institutions again, um, which we don't have at this time. Um, you can find me on um, Brownstone Institute. Um, you can write to me at accommodatingchaos at gmail.com. Um, that's the name of my mini book that's on um, Amazon, both as a Kindle and paperback version. It's very inexpensive for a reason because I want people to have access to it. But if you don't want to um, buy it, you can write to me at accommodatingchaos at gmail.com. And um, I provide it a pro bono for professional development and educational purposes because I think people actually should have, um, <laughs> you know, correct information um, in a crisis. And so, um, and and then I'm on Twitter at Mamasaurus Meg M A M A S A U R U S Meg M E G, but um, you know I uh, I welcome people to reach out. I'm gonna link all your links in the description, and if people want to click on the Amazon link and give you a five star review, they can do that too. Um, but I want to make sure that everyone can find your links, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk about this on my show, um, and appreciate that the work uh, that you do. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.